Our scripture reading this morning is found in Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be reading uh, verses 6 through 15. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him who is head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him, with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ, when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. And let's pray. God, we ask that as we come to your word this morning, that you would give us clear vision, that we would be energized, that we would meet Jesus, that we would begin the process of so saturating our minds with your truth that every facet of our life would be shaped by it. In Christ's name, amen. So, full disclosure, um, probably a few weeks ago, uh, but but certainly it, it began before a few weeks ago, but it kind of reached this height a few weeks ago. I was feeling really discouraged. just needing to know like all right so what are we doing what's next like god what did i do what haven't i done are we is this right and um and so like a good reformed guy uh in my discouragement i found books and blogs and articles to read right like maybe if my mind uh is fed with some stuff then my heart will shift which works like one percent of the time but this happened to be that one percent of the time like one of those times and so um if i so first of all let me take another step to the side and say uh daniel dixon got married yesterday um I officiated that wedding 
in Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, the wedding started at 5.30, except that it rained, and so it started at 6.30. So uh, after the wedding, I drove home. Uh, so anything that I say that is maybe like a little bit on the edge or even like falling off the edge, a tribute to that. Um, <clears throat> uh, but uh, going back to what I was saying, <clears throat> and if I'm stumbling over my words, that's also why. Uh, I found something that was actually really encouraging to me because I began to think about, okay, so God, what have you really called us to do? And is this what you've called us to do? Right? And so if you're in that kind of mindset, just know that you're not alone. Right? Like we're, we're thinking through this. We're praying through this. And, and I wanted to kind of go back to that original thing that God gave me gave Melissa, I think gave us, and it was this idea of planting a church in D.C. that was, that was multi-everything. Like at the end of the day, we wanted a church that was so shaped by the gospel and so devoted to the kingdom of God uh, that, that we rejected all of the homogenous growth principles of church, that we rejected all of the, the, and, and And this isn't to say the things that churches do are wrong. This is to say, like, as a guiding principle, we wanted to create a community where people would be welcome from different walks of life. We wanted to be multi-ethnic. We wanted to be multi-generational. We wanted to be multi-socioeconomic. And we wanted to do it in a city that was changing, in the midst of change, trying to navigate gentrification, trying to navigate all of the justice issues that came with it. Right, And so when you think about multi-everything church planting in urban centers, it's really kind of a rare thing. Uh, and I wish I had known how rare it was before we began, not because I wouldn't have done it. I absolutely would have done it, uh, but because I feel like at each stage that we've gone through, I would have been looking at the right materials and resources to talk about the different difficulties that we've been going through. And so I found a site that was dedicated to it, and it was endorsed by people that, that I liked and, um, and, and that have helped shape how I think about ministry and whether you know it or not, how you all think about ministry and the gospel uh, as a church. Uh, and they had a document called The Phases of Church Planting, and, and you're going to get this email to you because we're going to actually be able to, like, talk about it at the members meeting, which is another reason you should come to the members meeting. And just get, like, uh, the temperature of, of the room, as it were. Um, <clears throat> but I was looking and saying, all right, well, what phase are we in? What phase do I feel like I'm in? And so phase one, I'm just going to summarize them briefly. You'll have it to be able to look. Phase one is the visionary stage. That's, that's where you're, like, assessing the need and just dreaming up this idea of a church. And it's what we talked about. Like, this is the church we want. Phase two is the launching phase. So we were super Baptist-y. And so we didn't launch. We covenanted together, right? We took a page straight from, like, 1812 New Hampshire, right? Like, we covenanted together. But still, that's the phase where everything is kind of beginning. And if you want to think about it, uh, for those of you who've been with us from the jump, that was when we were sitting around that, that living room, in our house 
and then we would walk to the dining room and we would all stand around the table and take communion together around the table and we were all energized and like oh this could be something cool and then we outgrew the house which in DC is like I mean praise God but you know we didn't outgrow like a house in Fairfax but we outgrew the house and we were really excited and and we entered into the movie theater and that was really all a part of that same phase and what's happening is people are coming people are interested we're excited because it feels like things are happening um, and <clears throat> uh, if we look at say our suburban brethren right that phase kind of just like launches into suburbia right and it just right it just it just keeps going and part of the reason is that suburban life is meant to be very homogenous, right? And that's okay. God has called people to plant there, and God has called churches to plant there. But for us, uh, we, we ran into what they called phase three, which is the reality check phase. And for some of you, you may be here, and that's fine. This is good. And this is all going somewhere. You're like, are we going to get into the Bible? Yes, we are. The reality check phase is that growth becomes slower than you think or even plateaus. People are trying to get used to this idea of a new type of church in the city. There's a lot of different people who are interested, but especially in multi-whatever planting, there are going to be phases or there are going to be aspects of church that seem unusual to some, right? And if, if you're not on board with with some of the unusual things or the things you're not familiar with, then you, there's places where you'll be comfortable. And so what happens is we become kind of restless. It says some of the core phase, including original leaders, which, you know, whatever, like they may leave. People are tired. People are wondering what's going on. And so that leads into phase four, the discouragement phase. And I told you three weeks ago what I was saying. Well, I'm just going to read this verbatim. The discouragement phase is you begin to question the wisdom of the project as a whole. And then they said, um, this can last from a few weeks to a few months. And as a warning, it said, if it goes beyond a year, like, then you need to be concerned, right? And so, again, I don't know where you may be. You may have been in Germany for, I'm just pulling that out of, I don't know. Maybe you were in Germany for a year, and so you're coming in, and, and you're just hitting reality check mid, I don't know, breath. I don't know. Maybe you haven't had enough time to process. Again, I'm just spitballing here. Um, you know, but you may be in one of those phases. Um, <clears throat> and then comes phase five, and this is really important. And, and as I was reading it, it struck me as like, okay, so this is, phase five is intentionally designed to get us out of the discouragement phase. Or the reality check phase. Maybe you haven't reached the discouragement phase. And I'm putting like thoughts in here, should I be discouraged? Right. All right. Well, phase five will help drag you past that. Maybe you get to leapfrog that, pass over that. And phase five is the recommitment phase. And part of that is a reminder for all of us, like what we're doing is good work. It's to remind us why we jumped in on this thing in the first place. It, it's a time for us to like re-up, re-ante. 
to to um, <clears throat> to make sure we're still in line with the values, and then to, as Paul actually tells us, to encourage one another not to grow weary in doing good. And family, I believe that we're doing good. Like the evidence is there. And I want to spend this next five weeks, I talked about this last week, this next five weeks just going over, re-examining what we're doing so that I can say to you at the end of each week, do not grow weary in doing good. Because after this recommitment phase is phase six, and this happens, they said, in well, phases three through five, or three and four happen in 99% of churches. And so I believe that the difference in the rest is that they don't persevere through the difficulty, through the financial uncertainty, through friends leaving, through all of the struggle, through Sundays where it's like, uh, I know more people exist in the world, right? Like, we've got to persevere through and not grow weary in doing good. And that's why I brought this up now, because I want to set that as the stage. In, in, in essence, when we meet on, uh, on June 17th as members, we're going to talk about where you are, and we're going to pray that we move from discouragement to recommitment. And almost in a sense, it's like relaunching because after that comes the growth and development stage. And it's not necessarily just growing in people, right? That's not the only thing we're after, but that's a part of it is maturity. We want to mature as a family. And so I want these next five weeks for us to be intent and intense in looking at these things looking at our values, looking at our commitments, reminding ourselves of what we're doing and who we are. And, and maybe in, in, you know, in, the, in, in the process of that, like getting you excited again. It's like, oh yeah, like that's, that's what God's called us to do. And I want to do that through the text. Like I want to root it all in scripture. And so for the next uh, five weeks, we're going to be looking at phrases that may be new to you, but that link directly to things that we want to be about, things that are for us values, deep-seated core values, right? We want to look this week at the idea of gospel fluency. We want to be a church full of people who are fluent in the gospel, right? Next week, we're going to look at... at, um, At, at bold, almost ridiculous faith. We're going to look at authentic worship. We're going to look at uh, <clears throat> radically diverse community. Right? And we're going to look at kingdom presence. What does it mean to be a kingdom presence in our city? But all of that starts with this first one, gospel fluency. You guys are back, and so, like, it's, it's just in the front of my mind, and I was actually thinking about this. I was thinking about how after a year in a foreign country, country foreign to you anyway, uh, they thought you were foreign, right? After a year there, you begin to pick up phrases, you begin to pick up little words, and maybe if you're really disciplined, uh, you begin to be able to at least be uh, sur- uh, able to survive in a culture, right? After a year in... in being immersed in the language, right? And 
if any language is your second language, and I think about this a lot because what we speak in this country actually has become a topic of kind of like controversy and contention. Like there are people who just their native tongue isn't English, and there have been scenes where people are speaking to one another in their native tongue, not harming anybody, and being berated for not speaking in English. And that's, a, that's, that's wrong, and it's a shame, right? But um, <clears throat> anytime you go to another country, even if you've studied for a long time, and so whether it's you're there for a year, or I think about my mom who was in the Czech Republic for almost 10 years and who, was, uh, who uh, had studied the language before she went, um, <clears throat> there are different levels of being able to understand a language. I can speak, I can hear, I can, I can understand, right? So for me with Spanish, I hear it, and uh, apart from like clips and phrases now and then, like I understand it, right? I can process what's going on. Now the, me taking that, understanding it in, in English, then taking my English thoughts and speaking it back out in Spanish, that's another story. And for other people, they're really good at it. They're really effective at it. But they still have to have that process of starting in their language and translating it to the language they want to speak and then saying it. And what happens is um, and you know this, every language, every culture has their little idioms. They have their little phrases, they have their little uh, jokes, their little ironies that you can know the language really, really well and still just not get. There's a difference between being able to survive, being conversant, and being like fluent. Fluent. And when we think about fluency in a language, we think about, <clears throat> we think about the idea of, of just thinking naturally. It naturally is in your head. You don't have to think twice about, is this this word or is this that word? I've heard even like when you start to dream and in your dreams you're speaking in that language, like there is a sense in which it's reached your subconscious, right? It is just a part of who you are. And, and so this language just flows naturally out of you. Um, you don't have to, like, translate. And so when we talk about gospel fluency, and you hear those two words put together, that's what I want you to think of, right? The gospel is, is a story. It's good news. And the gospel has effects on our lives. But, but I, I want us, and, and I think God calls us to be a people who are fully conversant in the gospel, who are fluent in the gospel. For some of you, you may find yourselves in different places. You may find yourself in a place where, like, if I sit up here and I talk to you from the gospel, and sometimes I'll do that. I'll, 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 I'll sometimes, hopefully every week. But sometimes it'll be something that maybe you hadn't thought of before and connect the dot from the Old Testament to Jesus to what's going on in your life right now. And you can hear that and you can receive that. Um, and that is a gift of the Holy Spirit. But if we were to sit down and I was to say to you, do this, right? Even start simple and say, look at the story of David and Goliath. And tell me 
how the gospel applies to that, how, how the gospel is drawn out of that story, and then how it applies to your life. You might have difficulty with it, but you might be able to do it. Some of you might be able to do it. Some of you might be able to say, well, Jesus is our great and glorious David, and we're the Israelites, afraid on the sideline. And on the cross, Jesus conquers our giants. And because of that, because the head of Goliath is, is, is destroyed, cut off, like the head of the serpent is crushed, we, God's people, reap the benefit and the victory of that. Right? You may be able to see, oh, like the gospel is clearly in David and Goliath. And so what that means for us is we have to both have, we both have to have faith in the work of Jesus, and we have to remember it so that as we go out to the battle, we recognize that the champion of sin and death in our life has been defeated, and we are a victorious people. You might be able to do that. Some of you might be like, oh, I've never even considered that before. And great, right? Like we're all in different phases. But then what about when you're dealing with anger? lust. How do you speak to yourself in that moment? And a lot of times, our brains go right back to our natural fluent language, which is law. Right? That's what I'm fluent in. Man, I'm dealing with lust. I better put up all the things. I'm not saying don't put up all the things. But never once comes into our mind, Jesus conquered this. Like, I'm fighting a headless enemy. It's a boldness that comes with that, right? The fluency of, or, or, um, or we get into social situations and we say, man, this just seems political. We don't know how to apply the gospel to conversations about race or conversations about gender and sexuality or conversations about politics or conversations just in general. We don't know how to apply the gospel to it. And what we have to become is fluent. And so this is why I want us to come to this text. And this text talks to us and gives us some things about gospel fluency <clears throat> that we're going to just walk through really quickly. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, being rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, and overflowing with gratitude. And so the first thing that this text tells us is immediately about the gospel. So if I were to give you context, Colossians 1, uh, Paul to the church in Colossae just goes off. Like, it's the most incredible Christology, uh, theology of Jesus ever. Like, ever. Right? The image of the invisible bit. Like, it's amazing. And he talks about, he um, just, he's the image of the invisible visible God, firstborn of all creation. Uh, the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in him and, and to make peace through his blood on the cross. You were alienated and hostile in your minds, but because of Christ, you have been brought near. He is in all and through all, and he strengthens us, and he gives us right, and, and we rejoice in our sufferings because those are the sufferings of Christ, right? Like, Paul just, just kills it, right? Kills it about the gospel, and about how God brought us who were far near. But then he turns it, and this is amazing. And so he says, all right, so then, just as you've received Christ as Lord, just as you've received that gospel in your conversion, in your repentance, in your turning to faith, so continue to live in him. What Paul is saying here is clear, that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is not just for you to be converted 
but it is necessary for every facet of life. When we say that one of our core values is gospel fluency, gospel at the center, what we are saying is we, we apply the gospel to every facet of life. It's in, the, it's in the mission statement. Magnify Jesus by making disciples that apply the gospel to every facet of life. The only way to do that is to continue to live in him, to be rooted up and built up in, and established in the faith that you were taught. Right? It's this gospel fluency. It's this, it's this devotion to the knowledge and the truth of Jesus as revealed to us through the gospels and through the epistles and through all of scripture and so deeply that it's just the language that your mind thinks. Right? And this, this comes into play in so many ways. But <clears throat> just in case you didn't think it was that important, Paul gives us a deep caution. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than on Christ. Now he's dealing with actual false teachers in the church. And today we still have them. We have teachers that teach you things that aren't based on Christ. And we know this because they call you to life that is not Christ-like. And it's not just like, oh, you can sin like you want. Ideas like, if you have enough faith, God will make you healthy, wealthy, and whole. Think about Jesus. Did he just not have enough faith? He was homeless, never got married. His friends abandoned him. He was accused of something falsely, convicted, murdered suffered deeply did he not have enough faith right so if somebody tells you that if you will simply just just name it and claim it that you'll have a crown and they don't ever tell you that the crown has a cost that the cross precedes the resurrection or then they're teaching you something out of step with the gospel and that's going to affect how you apply these truths to your life and so paul says whether it's it's philosophical cunning it's it's not just philosophy paul is not like don't read plato paul is saying people are coming up with some wild like alex jones conspiracy stuff about the gospel right don't get caught up in it these gnostics are coming through and they're saying just wild flagrant stuff about god's relationship with with the physical realm. Don't get caught up in it. Right? This is what's funny, is we hear this a lot. Christianity is not a Western religion. It's an Eastern religion. Yeah, that's kind of true, except that it's also not an Eastern religion. It kind of just stands out as its own. And people from the East, like when they hear it, there are elements that are just familiar, and then there are elements that are like, why in the world would that ever be a thing? And for us in the West, it's the exact same way, right? Christianity, like Paul is cautioning us to be careful to guard the gospel in our hearts and in our minds. If we're going to be fluent, we have to do this. So then he reminds us, the entire fullness of God nature dwells bodily in Christ. Now hear this. And you have been filled by him. Literally the good news of the gospel then is rooted in you. It's there. You just have to nurture it. 
What Paul is saying is the fullness of God dwells in Christ and Christ dwells in you. Now, I know that is a scary progression in your mind. You are not God, but you have access to the fullness of God. All of this comes back to this concept of the gospel. So the first thing that we kind of see Paul doing is saying, root your whole life in the gospel and devote yourself to it. Believe it. Protect it. That's why when Paul talks to Timothy, he says, make sure that you are teaching sound doctrine. When he talks to Timothy, he says, the things that I've entrusted to you, those things are doctrine. They're the doctrine of the gospel, right? They're not like Calvin's Institutes or, or the Schofield Bible, but they are the doctrines of grace and of what Jesus has done. These things that I've entrusted to you, teach to men, entrust to faithful men who will teach others, who will pass it on. Paul is saying, guard the gate. Guard the doctrine of the gospel. It is that important. And that's not just my job, or when we affirm him, Joey's job, or any other elder that we may have. It's not just the seminary professor's job to guard the gospel. It's your job in your heart, your mind, and in your life, because the gospel saturates your mind. That's what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2, when he says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed how? By the renewing of your mind. How does that come? Through gospel saturation. That renewing of your mind is that moment when you go from having to think the phrase in English and then translate it to Spanish to speak it to you just say it. That is a turning to fluency from proficiency to fluency. And as a church, we want each and every member of this church and each and every person who comes and stays for an extended period of time to be constantly moving towards gospel fluency. Just one more thing. Because I love this. He says, when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. Right? There's, there's the gospel. Christ forgave us. God forgave us in Christ. But what I love about this is that he doesn't leave it there. He says, he erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross And, he doesn't stop there, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. And so this is the last thing when we talk about gospel fluency. And I know that it feels like we've breezed through this, but but that's okay because this is what we do week in and week out. Right? So, If gospel fluency means that we need to guard the gospel in our hearts, in our teaching, and in our doctrine, that we need to have sound doctrine that begins to transform the way that we think, here's what happens. And and perhaps some of you have been dealt this hand, or perhaps some of you are just kind of thinking this, like, the gospel, Jesus died for sinners. Right? Right? That's a good, that's a fair enough summation that 
that God saved sinners. Christ died for our sins. Right? That's the gospel. And you begin to say something to this effect, like, okay, I get that and I believe that. I don't really quite yet understand how that speaks to the broader, bigger picture of life. And this is why I like this text and why I like these last couple verses, because Paul actually begins to do that for us. Paul shows us that the gospel may be, even when you say it concisely, it may seem small, but it's not. It's actually all-encompassing, right? The gospel is all-encompassing. And so, first of all, we see it from a personal standpoint. You were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. And so he had just talked about how you were also circumcised with him in a circumcision not done with hands, but by the putting off of the flesh. Basically, he calls it in other places the circumcision of the Holy Spirit. He ties it to baptism. We could talk about the doctrine that Union Church and and that Baptistic churches hold about baptism and how we tie it into this text. Right, And he, he ties in baptism to our faith and to our belief right, in the work of God. Uh, but functionally what he's saying, when he brings in circumcision, because right, it's like, oh, that's weird, Paul. Right? Like we were talking about Jesus and faith and the gospel, and then here you go. Right? But it's not weird to them first century Jews circumcision was central to them to their faith it still is last year we attended a bris and it was an amazing ceremony and I was prepared and I was not prepared right But circumcision was entering into the covenant family of God. It was faithfulness to the covenant of God, which is funny because it's basically saying it was faithfulness to the faithfulness of God. Circumcision didn't save anybody. It couldn't. Right? Like, circumcision also wasn't about the, like... the moral goodness of the recipient of the of circumcision. Now, granted, if you were like a 35-year-old convert to Judaism, like, man, there's a lot of just wow. But more often than not, it was the baby, eight days old. They weren't like, yeah, you know what? I like this thing that, that God's doing. I want to be a part of it. And, right, like circumcision in that context, in the covenant context, was a gift. It was a gift of grace that entered you into the covenant family of God. And what Paul is doing here is saying the gospel is personal. It's not private, but it's personal. It is deeply personal. You are cut off from God. If you are not in Christ, you are separated from the family of God, but Christ circumcises not with hands and not the flesh, but the heart with the spirit. And so Paul ties it to baptism because what he's saying is you are receiving the Holy Spirit of God through Christ that makes you alive and that life enters you into God's family. It's deeply personal. You've been made new. You've been made alive. 
You've been made clean. It's personal, but it's not private. In fact, it's a very public and political thing. Now, don't hear me saying partisan, which I know is hard in this country to not marry partisan and political, right? Because we, even in our church, we have a spectrum of political belief, and I'm thankful for that. Right, But it's deeply political. Listen to what he says. Not only is it personal, but he also disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them. So when he says he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he disgraced them publicly, he's not just talking about like uh, the Pharisees or Rome. He's talking about all that that encompasses, all that they stand for. Whether it's... Whether it's uh, religious abuse and power grasping or whether it's oppression injustice war and death all of the things that Rome and the religious leaders in in Israel represented all of the power structures all of the principalities and the forces of darkness that are behind the rulers and not, not like the rulers are like, I give myself to you, powers and principalities and darkness, but just the fact that there is both that political and like realm, but then there's the spiritual realm that's behind everything. Those powers and those principalities in that moment were disarmed and disgraced because for Rome, the, the weapon that they had, both in expanding the empire and in keeping the people in check in the empire, was death through war or through the cross, through execution. They wielded the sword. That was the highest power of the state, and it remains so today. And Jesus took the sword. He died. They took his life. They gave him the best that they had, and he rose victorious. Which means that his kingdom is greater. His rule is greater. And it's different. And that means that we can speak to injustice. We can speak to, uh, <clears throat> we can speak to uh, death and culture of death. We can speak to the difficult topics of our day because Christ is victorious. We can apply the gospel to these things. This is what's amazing. It seems small, but then as, as Paul applies it, he applies it both personally and then in the broadest public sense. And this is the ultimate, like, place of fluency. Right? I know you, you feel some kind of way about a lot of things. And we live in a culture that, like, how can you not feel some kind of way about that? Like, it's egging you on to feel some kind of way about these things. But can you apply the gospel to your outrage, to your fear, your despair, your are you fluent in the gospel? See, this is the people that we want to be. This is who God has called us to be. This is what Paul is saying to the church in Colossae. And he realizes that as they're fluent in the gospel, they will live lives both personally, privately, and publicly that will demonstrate the gospel of Jesus and his kingdom. If you are like, man, I wish that I was better at sharing the gospel with people, don't worry about tactics to share the gospel with people. Work on becoming fluent in the gospel in your own life. 
and then watch how it overflows to language that's seasoned with salt. Watch how it overflows into the actions and the ways that you engage in dialogue with people who think like you and people who think differently than you. Because even the people who think like you in a lot of ways will find like, oh yeah, we agree, but I did not, I didn't come to it like that. And this is something completely new. Or we disagree, but you are gracious and loving and filled with a spirit that is not typical of this day, right? Like you want to you have gospel influence? You must, must, must become gospel fluent. This is a value within the church. It's one that we're deeply committed to. We apply the gospel to every facet of life. And doing that, doing that, will remind you, like we said earlier, that crowns are coming, that glory is coming, that we have to endure the suffering and the hardship that we can. So the gospel actually helps us to not grow weary in doing good. Let's pray.